Fun fact, while y'all are opening up to Ezra, let's see what day it is. Yep, indeed, this is uh, the calendar year mark for when I started um, last year being called to the church there. My first day, I think technically it was May 1st, but uh, so we're, we're right at the calendar year mark, so I'm very thankful uh, that I'm here with y'all tonight to go over the book of Ezra, which is what I expected I would be doing on the calendar year anniversary of when I was called to Centennial. Uh, uh, <laughs> the book of Ezra is where we're at, and uh, you know we've, we've been kind of tracking through the history of God's people. Ezra and Nehemiah, th- this is the culmination. You know, I, I, said it, I said it last week when we were in Chronicles that we have essentially made it through the fullness of the history of God's people. Uh, but only essentially, because Ezra and Nehemiah carry us just a little bit further. And then the rest of the books, the minor prophets, the larger prophets, the wisdom literature, all of that fits in to the chronology that we would now have under our belt, especially after we cover Ezra and then next week, Lord willing, Nehemiah. And so we've already got the the basic brunt of God's people's history uh, up until the exile with a decree that's been shouted at the end of Chronicles that they can go home. This is where the story picks up with Ezra. Uh, this is, a, in my opinion, an underrated book of the Bible. Not a lot of people quote Ezra. Not a lot of people mention Ezra as they're kind of marching through some of their favorite books of the Bible or favorite Old Testament books. However, in these ten chapters, there are some wonderful moments of gospel clarity. Uh, There is a revelation of God's sovereignty and protection for his people. Uh, There is an emphasis on the ethics that we should be living in as followers of God. Uh, And all of these things are found in this little book uh, that we can sometimes overlook. The book of Ezra. So let's pray. We'll look at it uh, and then maybe talk about it uh, uh, via question at the end. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, as we do look at the book of Ezra, I pray that we might see you, Father, that you are in control and that in your control you protect your people and you preserve your people and you even do so post salvation. Lord, you even do so when we are great sinners in need of you to forgive and redeem. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see the gospel clearly seen, uh, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the book of Ezra, you should have your handout in front of you. I encourage you, take a look at it. Uh, The the, the context and the connection, uh, there's some very good things in there that will help you as you go into this book. And remember... That's the purpose of this whole Bible study that we have been entering into and that, Lord willing, we will continue for actually quite a few more weeks. We may break for the summer, but in the fall, if God were to will, we will pick right back up. And so uh, you'll, you'll, uh, if you recall with me, the purpose is not that we would you know, read verse by verse 1 through chapter 10 or anything like that, but that we would hit some overarching themes that will really help as you open this up individually or in Bible studies 
etc. Uh, I think that we're going to be able to do that tonight. Uh, here are the things that we need to remember before we go into the text proper. And that's where in the world we are chronologically. I kind of made a little bit of a mention of it. Uh, at the end of the book of Chronicles, we have recorded for us all the way to the destruction of both kingdoms, all right? So Israel is the northern kingdom. They had uh, rebelled against the true Davidic line, and so they're kind of up here doing their own thing, and they were judged for it, eliminated, wiped out. Uh, as they, some of them went into exile, most of them died, uh, Judah remained, the kingdom, the Davidic line. Well, they too subsequently were destroyed, and yet there was an exile Many Judeans uh, and Benjamites and a few others uh, went uh, uh, in exile to Babylon. Uh, well, Babylon stayed for a little while, but as with all kingdoms of this world, they too were judged. And so uh, Cyrus and the, uh, and the Persians came in, destroyed Babylon. And so now we're in this kingdom uh, of Persia being led by the king, Cyrus, and he issues a decree and tells them to go home, the Jews, that is. He takes the Jews that were in exile and sends them back to the promised land. That's where we pick up in Ezra. And so what follows then is this trek back. Uh, and they, they find themselves in Jerusalem. The temple, of course, had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they needed to rebuild the temple. It's vital to their religious system of the time. That's how Jesus Christ, uh, and that's how God was revealing Jesus Christ in that time. It's vital. And so they rebuild it. Uh, not only that, they need protection. And so the book of Nehemiah then, after the temple is rebuilt, uh, catalogs uh, how the walls around Jerusalem are likewise rebuilt. And so you have the, the rebuilding of the temple, you have the rebuilding of the city, uh, of the walls itself and the dedication, and God is the one working in all of it. That's where we find ourselves as we begin uh, Ezra. And here's the theme, it's on your handout. God preserves, provides, and prepares his people for holiness through the salvation that he also gives. Uh, here's a couple ways that we're going to be able to see that. Uh, and the first is, uh, there's only two tonight, there's not three. I know y'all are disappointed. Uh, usually there are three ways to help us. There's only two. The first is that God is actively sovereign. Uh, sovereignty being, the, the, the meaning being in control. Uh, well, we need to add a word to that because sometimes we can think of passive sovereignty. Well, he's in control, but you know, he's just kind of this old man in the sky doing nothing except for watching it work like a clock. He's made the clock, but now he just watches it tick. That's not how God works. God is actively sovereign. He is in the mix, as it were, uh, providing, preserving, uh, and preparing his people, uh, which is part of that theme. And so we see that first all through uh, the book of Ezra. Here's a few examples. First, God is actively sovereign because he is in control of the rulers. Let's look uh, at the first example in chapter 1. This is the decree of Cyrus, that Persian king that issued the decree sending the Jews home. Let's just read it. It's four verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit. Who did the Lord? Stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now listen to this. Cyrus is using the personal name of God. 
his spirit being stirred up by the same God. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, the same one that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, that is being away from home, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. What? Uh, it's God's active sovereignty. Uh, God, if you recall in the book of Kings, for instance, when we were talking about this, Chronicles a little bit as well. It was God who was chastising his people. The book of Judges, we mentioned this as well. You know, judgment is falling from these other nations upon God's people because of their sin. Uh, but it is God who is in control. He is chastising his people. Uh, uh, punishment, we might take a negative connotation with. God is punishing his people, but uh, not in a negative way, in a, in a positive way. We can read the book of Hebrews to see that. In the New Testament, I encourage you to go there to see if my words are true. Uh, uh, and, and you see there, especially in Hebrews chapter 12, that God is chastising his children because he loves his children and he doesn't want his children to go to hell. He wants his children to be saved. And so as he is working, he helps them to see the great sin that they had fallen into and the repercussions of such sin. And so we see here again uh, that God is not only in control totally of the chastising portion He's also in total control of the redeeming portion. And this makes total sense if we're following it logically. If God is in control, he is in control. That's all there is to say about it. And so God here stirs up the spirit of the king of Persia. Remarkable. That's one example of God's active sovereignty via rulers. Here's another one for rulers. Ezra chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, if you flip there with me while you're doing this, we're at a new, uh, a new king. My history professor called him Darius, and so I'll call him Darius. Most people say Darius, but I've said Darius so many times. Uh, don't be weirded out by it. It's just what he said, and so I say it. Uh, and so you see King Darius, and he's here, uh, another king in this line uh, of kings, and this is what God is doing through him. Uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 6. This is in response, by the way, to a letter from the governors in Jerusalem saying, hey, haven't you seen? They're rebuilding stuff, and they shouldn't be doing that. This is the same place that caused so much trouble for everybody else. Well, this is the response after Darius had done some digging and had done his research to see if, uh, if the words that the Israelites were saying were true, that Cyrus really did tell them to do what it was that they were doing. Here's Darius in chapter 6, verse 6. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, that's that great river, by the way, uh, the river Jordan, Shether, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. 
Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. And then he goes on and he even adds more weight to the previous decree. And he even goes so far as to say, if you mess around with it, I'm going to take a piece of wood out of your own house and I'm going to stick you on it so other people won't mess around with the Jews either. Uh, God, in his, in his marvelous excellency, preserving his people uh, through these rulers who should not be preserving the Jews. They really are instigators. Uh, they really do believe in one God and that they should not bow the knee to any emperor. Let's continue. Ezra chapter 7. This is where Ezra actually comes onto the scene. Who sends Ezra? Well, it's actually one of the kings of Persia. Artaxerxes. This is another one in the in the line of succession. And so now we see Artaxerxes. Uh, and we'll just read chapter 7, verses 25 through 28. This is remarkable to hear. This is Artaxerxes writing in a letter. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Verse 27 of chapter 7 This is a a change in voice. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. This is Ezra speaking, perhaps, or someone else who's adding commentary. To beautify the house of Yahweh that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's uh, mighty officers. I took courage For the hand of Yahweh my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This was Artaxerxes, and and he was basically putting a death sentence on anyone who would disobey the word of God. Ezra, of course, is a scribe trained in the law of Moses, and so this was no false teacher. Uh, Ezra was a proclaimer of the gospel, holding fast to the revelation of God, and Artaxerxes vehemently supporting him uh, with serious ramifications for those who did not. Remarkable. Now, that's God's act of sovereignty in rulers. Uh, He also presents uh, his act of sovereignty in other ways. Uh, For instance, in pure revelation. Uh, We can go back to Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. You heard me say it before, so if you don't want to flip there, that's okay. We're going to be flipping back to chapter 5 in a moment. Uh, But in pure revelation, God uh, reveals his sovereignty because uh, he is actually speaking into the situation. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 1, the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled. God had used Jeremiah as a mouthpiece from childhood on. So we see God's revealing himself through his prophets. Uh, This has been happening uh, and and ultimately culminates 
in Jesus Christ. Speaking of the book of Hebrews, you see this again in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, uh, where in many ways, you know, the fathers and the prophets, divers' manners, uh, God had revealed himself. Now you see it in Jesus Christ. He is the great one, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than everybody, because he is God. Uh, that's the book of Hebrews. Check it out. I, I, I'm saying it a couple times. I don't know why, um, but perhaps in God's providence, y'all should read it. Okay, chapter 5, God's active sovereignty. He's revealing himself. Well, we saw Jeremiah. Uh, there are some other prophets on the scene at this time. Jeremiah, of course, had, had prophesied a little earlier. So they're seeing his writing and saying, hey, wait a second. It's, it's happening. Now we see some contemporaries, uh, some people of the time. Chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, we'll read a few verses here of God's revelation to his people. Now the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, we have letters, we have prophecies from both of these individuals, by the way, recorded in our scriptures. Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, uh, that, by the way, is the, uh, uh, the descendant of David. He's carrying the messianic line. And so, of course, we would see him here. Uh, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetharbozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Remember, this is before that letter of Darius. We had read that earlier. Uh, Darius was responding to this very accusation. Uh, verse 4, they also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? Here's verse 5. Here God's active, active sovereignty. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. We know the answer, and it said, keep going. So there was a couple road bumps, but in God's providence, they continued to build this temple. So God's active sovereignty and rulers and actual pure revelation, and then there's one other way, preservation. This is, if you can't tell yet, sprinkled throughout the whole book that God is the one doing these things. And so we see in preservation, uh, we'll just look at uh, two examples. Uh, Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8. This is when Ezra actually comes. You'll see this in the explanation on your handout. There are two sections of Ezra. One is, is pre-Ezra, technically, about 60 years before Ezra comes. And it's the, the first uh, the first trek down, uh, coming back from, from exile of the Jews. Uh, that's a lot of the people coming. And then you have this kind of priestly delegation coming with Ezra the scribe as they come to seek to grow the people in holiness. Uh, uh, that's about 60 years after uh, the first coming. And so anyways, okay, uh, this is chapter 8. Uh, let's read verses 21 through 23. Uh, this is God simply preserving his people. And sovereignty. Then I, that's Ezra in all likelihood, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. 
Verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this. And he listened to our entreaty. He listened. They were preserved. God listened. Remarkable. And then chapter 9, we wanted to continue to see God's preservation of his people. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 8 is an easy one. Uh, By the way, chapter 9, we'll talk about it here in just a second. This is a chapter of chapters. I I, I say this all the time, that all scripture uh, is inspired by God, and it's wonderful and profitable for teaching and for reproof, all of those things. There are some first among equals. And Ezra chapter 9 is one that you would do well to read more than once. Uh, It is a remarkable chapter of scripture where a holy man of God is seeking repentance before the Lord for sins that they had entered into. And so this is in the midst of that. Ezra chapter 9, speaking of God's active sovereignty through preservation, we'll just read one verse, verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by Yahweh our God. To leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. A remnant has been preserved by God. The remnant uh, plays mightily into the theology of the New Testament. Paul particularly. You'll see this in the book of Romans. You'll see this in the book of Galatians. You'll see this all throughout as you're looking to see who are God's people. I thought that Israel as a whole was God's people, but you're saying now it's Jews and Gentiles. I don't understand. Well, this is where we begin to see that within God's people, uh, those people that God has shown his ordinary grace to and said, hey, you're Israel. There are those who believe. The Christians, if you wanted to put it so bluntly, those that believe in God, those that believe in God's sovereignty over salvation, and those that cry out for that very salvation. And that's what we see here, a remnant that God has preserved, a remnant of which Ezra is one, and of which many of these are too. Uh, We see God's active sovereignty in the rulers of the time, in the, rev- the revelation, just pure revelation of God into the situation and the preservation of his people. God is in control and he's actively seeking to do these things for his people. Wonderful. There's another thing. This is the second thing. Uh, the, really the only, there are much more we could always talk about, but really the, the only other thing that you kind of need to grasp big time for you to flow through Ezra quite naturally And that's the intermarriage issue. Uh, 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 The intermarriage issue happens in chapters 9 and 10. And and this can cause a bit of conflict for the book of Ezra. And it's actually, in my opinion, one of the reasons why uh, uh, mainstream kind of cultural American American Christianity has dropped this book uh, like a brick. Is because it gets a little awkward when we talk about marriage and when we talk about intermarriage. What in the world is he referring to? Uh, and so it's good for us to have a concept and a grasp of this. Uh, because with it, we can see that God's in total control and that, uh, and that through this example of intermarriage, uh, God is seeking to reveal what his people should be doing post-salvation, which is pursue holiness, righteousness. In other words, pursue the things of the Lord, God himself. Let's look at it. 
chapters 9 and 10, uh, as I said, it can be a little misunderstood. It, it's, not, it's not an interracial thing. Uh, and for us, when we say that, we think black and white. This would have been more like, like brown and brown. Uh, I mean, so it's, it's not a skin color thing. We kind of can read that in, though. If you've never heard this before, I'm so glad. Don't worry about it. And yet, uh, this has been a real issue uh, where people look at this and they say, look, God himself said white people and black people can't get married. <laughs> By no means. That's not what this text is saying. Uh, this text is actually talking uh, about the sins of one people and the righteousness of another and how the mixing of those two things are not good because the sins will pollute the righteousness. We'll see that with just a few examples. And you'll see uh, that I'm not lying when I'm talking about cultures combining and things like that. It's all in the text, which is nice. It's not my opinion. Uh, it's simply the text before us. Okay, uh, a few pieces of scripture. The first, uh, repentance for sin is needed. Uh, and, and this is where we see what this begins to be about. Um, this is chapter 9. Let's look at verse 10. Chapter 9, verse 10. It's sprinkled all throughout, and so I'm taking a few examples. When you read it, you'll see a fuller picture. Chapter 9, verse 10. This is Ezra speaking, and he's speaking about the sins of the people. What in the world is this intermarriage thing about? And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants and prophets, saying... The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, this is God speaking, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. And this is, uh, I read that first because it'll help us to see what's happening. Now we read chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. If you go back into those other books that we've covered already, you will see these names listed over and over and over. And you will see them listed for one reason and one reason alone. They are blasphemers. They worship idols of stone and wood. They sacrifice their children. They have sex and make it glorified to think that that is what the world is about, carnal pleasure. They seek to pervert everything that God stands for. And they seek to lead others astray in those very sins. And so we see then as the Levites, the priestly class that were to lead the people in holiness, they are entering in to not only abominations, but blasphemy against God. More than that, the very same blasphemy that they were exiled for in the first place. You know, you get a whipping from your daddy, you try not to do it again. You don't want to get whipped again. And they're about to. That's the problem. This isn't a, a black-white thing or a brown-white thing or whatever it is here. It's not a race 
thing. This is a holiness thing. This is a gospel issue. This is why I don't marry believers and non-believers. It's a yoked marriage. That's how the New Testament speaks of it. It's a big deal. That's why they went into exile, going after other gods. And so you see in chapter 9, Ezra pulling his hair out, tearing his garments, sitting and actually weeping. Now, we don't have the time to discuss the merits of how we should grieve our own sins and the church's sins and our family's sins. But there is something to be learned in chapter 9. Read it. Read it more than once. It is a wonderful chapter of scripture. But uh, uh, just in case you were wondering, how in the world could he say this? Uh, how, how can I be certain that we're not talking about cultures joining? Uh, we see some Gentiles coming to faith. Uh, we see this because they're participating in the Passover. You know, the Passover, that's what happened in Egypt. Uh, the Lord passed over each door that had the blood of the lamb uh, uh, smeared on it. The angel of death, of course, taking the firstborn of each individual who had not done that. Uh, this, of course, revealing Jesus Christ, that firstborn son of God who sacrificed himself for us. The preservation of Jesus being seen in the lamb that was slain. And then, of course, smeared on the door. All of that pointing to Jesus Christ. Now we see this Passover, this revelation of God, this truly holy feast being observed by more than Jews. Let's look at it in uh, chapter 6, verses 19 through 22. This is the Passover being celebrated upon completion of the temple. So the temple's built, and they say, what do we do now? Well, we do the thing that's most important for the temple. We observe the Passover. Now, on the 14th day of the first month, this is chapter 6, verse 19, the returned exiles kept the Passover, for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. Here it comes, verse 21. And also by everyone who had joined them, and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. In other words, uh, if we go back to chapter 9, verse 1, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, they could actually convert if they so chose. They could actually remove themselves from that blasphemy that they had entered into. And they could actually go and celebrate the Passover upon observing the things that God had laid out and stipulated for them as they professed Yahweh to be God. What a remarkable moment for us to see the people of God and what God is seeking, uh, which is not the sacrifice of lambs, but the holiness, the obedience of the peoples. Incredible. Uh, this is all wrapped up within a, an, an example, the intermarriage issue. It was a, a firm example for the day because this was the very thing that sent them away. Uh, what greater example could there be of no, we cannot do this again, brothers and sisters. We cannot. And so you see the response of the people, uh, the right response in chapter 10, verse 2. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, 10, verse 2. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women. Uh, in other words, blasphemous women, idolatrous women. 
married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And so it was. You can read the rest. And it was done in, in, it was done in remarkable fashion. The rains had come. This was the rainy season. And so their whole council, the whole of all of Israel are all standing there recognizing their sin and the rain is pouring so hard that the leaders come and they say, listen, Ezra, we're doing this. We care. But it's really raining hard. You can hear them, right? Perhaps the fathers. Our children are going to get sick. We got to get inside. And so they do and the leaders stay and they catalog who had done this. And this is all in chapter 10. And they repented of such sin. That's how we end in the book of Ezra. Uh, A couple different things. God's active sovereignty and an example uh, of this intermarriage issue. And it's revealing that God is redeeming his people. That's the first thing. We don't save ourselves. God was the one who laid it on Cyrus's heart. It's a great example because they're in exile being chastised and then they're not. God saved them. A wonderful example of the gospel because the same thing happens to us. We were in exile, hardened hearts and all, blasphemous, sinners, righteous though we may be, trying to help uh, old ladies cross the street, whatever it might have, uh, all of that is as filthy rags before God when we are still not in right relationship with him. He is the one who puts us in right relationship. And when that happens, when God sends out the decree, when the spirit is moved, boom, and we confess Yahweh, I am God Almighty to be that God that saves then we are to pursue holiness and we will be convicted to do so. People will call us out. Might be me, might be somebody else. You might call me out. Uh, Somebody else might call us out, whatever it might be. We will then search the scriptures to see and we will say, you are right. But there's an answer. God has not left us yet. Let us repent. And repenting doesn't just mean saying, I'm sorry, and then walking home with your idolatrous wife. Uh, Repenting says, oh no. We must put away these wives because they are entirely blasphemous unto God. Uh, Now, that's not necessarily an example to um, uh, immediately get a divorce or something like that. Uh, The reality is that uh, that, uh, God himself has called us and saved us. And now in that, we are to live lives in accords with his word. It's a great example that we see in Ezra. It's kind of confined, right? We have it in 10 chapters. It's a century of history, a hundred years, but, but we get it in just 10 brief chapters. And because of that, uh, it's a little more palatable if we would just open it up and see it in light of these two things. Uh, that's all I have. Um, perhaps, perhaps one more thing as we close. We're getting to the point in this study where... Uh, the building blocks are beginning to create something. You know, I'd mentioned this before, God's redemptive history and God's revelation. Uh, We're starting to get enough under our belt. Uh, We're up to Ezra. We've gone through Genesis all the way through. Uh, We've done Psalms and Matthew and Revelation. We've got quite a bit now. And what you should be seeing, if you've been here for any amount of time, even just a few, is that these books are highly connected with one another. And that they build upon the theology. Uh, For instance, in Ezra, we see an assumption that you know who Zerubbabel is. He's of the Davidic line. 
Uh, for instance, we see in Ezra, uh, when they talk about Aaron, the high priest, Ezra's great, 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 great granddaddy was Aaron. He's of the line of Moses. What in the world does that mean? It means that his lineage is pure. God is seeking to reveal that the priestly class has come in full holiness to reveal to the people Jesus Christ and how to live in accords after that revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, we see these things beginning to happen. Uh, this intermarriage issue would make total sense if we were familiar with Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. However, sometimes we cannot be as familiar. And so, as we continue to build and as we go through some other things, you're going to begin to start to see that uh, we're going to be making references to other books and to other grand concepts. Uh, this is only a beginning, but it, it's only going to get more. So remember your handouts. Remember to go back. If you hear me say something quickly and then move on, remember that you have handouts on these things. You can find them online and look at them to see what it is that I'm talking about. All right, we've got a few minutes. Any questions about Ezra or anything that we've been studying? You don't have to have questions, by the way. I always like to say that. Do you think Ezra sometimes is a forgotten book of the Bible? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, here's the thing. Here's what's remarkable is that Ezra teaches us something. You know, in, in the Gospels, and I, may, I make mention of this in the handout, uh, in the Gospels you see the scribes, part of the Pharisaical tribe, uh, or the sect of the Jews. These scribes learned in the law, going to talk to Jesus. Well, they had warped themselves in self-righteousness, but their father is Ezra, a scribe, trained in the law of Moses. Uh, this was what the Pharisees should have been. Uh, but the Pharisees warped themselves in self-righteousness and warped God's word. They held fast to this and then added a little bit more. It's a great example when you compare the two. Because when you see Jesus giving the woes to the scribes and Pharisees, I can only imagine that he was thinking if only they had held to Ezra and what Ezra had done, which was proclaim only God's word and only God's law. And he did it humbly. If you read chapter nine, you'll see the humility that is in place there. And it is remarkable. Uh, it's not self-righteous. Ezra is abasing himself before God, recognizing that God saves and recognizing that they only stand because of God's mercy and grace. It's, it's honestly the doctrines of grace, what some people call Calvinism, what some people call Reformed theology. Uh, you find it in, in Ezra chapter 9, starting with total depravity and going all the way through perseverance. You see it all right there. Uh, it's, but nobody, nobody quotes Ezra 9 in that way because, whoa, watch out, intermarriage. You've got to be careful. Anything else? Yep. You, you mentioned, and you know, these wise men from the east rolling in. How in the world do they know about this? Well, there are there are God's people who are here who create a lineage. You know, a good example of that is Jonah. Even you know, you go to Nineveh now, whatever the modern day name for it is, you still have those who say, "Hey, we were here. Our our great 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 grandparents were here when Jonah came and proclaimed the good news." We, too, are Christians because of that. A lot of that place has been destroyed because of terrorism and things like that. 
You see it. You see the preservation of God, his active sovereignty in many places that we would never imagine. America's a good example. Why in the world would Christianity come here? Daniel, he testified before all of these kings one way or another. He, every time he was about to have a good child or something happened to him. You're right. And yet all of those kings gave glory to God down the and, and hear the, the edicts coming from these same kings that that he influenced. So we don't ever know but what God might have us someplace like that in a difficult situation. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that's a great example. You know, one, th- one thing I didn't cover, and you'll see it in your solid rock verses. When the temple was rebuilt, y'all, it was nothing like, the so- like Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. And so you see this, you see this rendition, you see these people talking, and, and everyone's super happy, except for the elderly who were actually there and saw the temple of Solomon. And then it gets destroyed, and they see this new temple, but it's nothing like King Solomon's. And so, as the people are joyous and dancing and exulting, Scripture records that you couldn't hear the people crying because the, loud, the loudness was so loud, the noise was so loud, but they were there weeping because of the repercussions of the sins that they had entered into. And so, you know, you see and we're suffering because of the corruption of this world, be it from our own accord, sins that we're being chastised for, or just simply because this world is corrupt and warped and there are people who don't believe in God and they are seeking to harass, whatever it might be, God's active sovereignty is there. Even if those people were weeping, those elderly ones who, who saw that the glory days perhaps were over, the glory days weren't over because God was continuing to preserve them and they saw their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren hold fast to God's word, which is powerful. But that suffering still remains. So to persevere through it in light of the hope that we have from God's act of sovereignty, wonderful application of Ezra and really the majority of Scripture. Time for one more if y'all have it. Could you marry two non-believers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. Uh, Alyssa was asking... You know, I'd mentioned uh, not yoking a marriage, a believer and a non-believer. That's because of the explicit command that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 regarding this. Don't do it. So I don't. However, uh, we also see marriage in Genesis, the very beginning, before the fall, between Adam and Eve. It's what some theologians, you don't have to ever remember this again, but it might be good sometimes if you want to pull it out of your back pocket. A creation mandate, uh, something that has been there from the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply is another one that happens within that. Uh, but marriage is one. It's, it's, a, it's a creation mandate. It's for all of creation. And so, uh, as I would hold to it, uh, if two non-believers were to come up to me, as long as it was a male and a female, they were not in accords with some other thing like that, uh, I would have no problem with marrying them. I would, I would let them know uh, in whose name I was marrying them and for what purpose. Uh, and I would share the gospel explicitly. Uh, and if they were to so choose not to believe, uh, they would be at that point just heaping coals upon their head, uh, which is tough, you know, however you want to parse that out. Uh, but I would have no problem marrying two non-believers. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We do thank you for your word, the revelation that you've given to us. That is inspired. Lord, we thank you uh, even to see that it is God-breathed that you uh, would uh, um, be so kind as to confirm, uh, to carry along men by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we opened it up tonight and we saw one little section of the redemptive history of your people, of which we are a part, God, we thank you for Ezra. We thank you for that uh, scribe trained in the law of Moses. And we would pray, Father, uh, that we would hold fast to the humility and to the knowledge and to the wisdom uh, that Ezra shows clearly has come from you, uh, particularly in chapter 9 of uh, this recorded part. Uh, Father, we would pray uh, that we would hold fast to those things and that as we do so, others around us Uh, would see us and wonder why in the world we were like this, why we were so humble, why we are so loving, and why we are so desirous uh, to continue to learn about you, to have our families learn about you, to come together as a church family and learn about you. God, it would all be that we might proclaim Jesus Christ to those who wouldn't believe, Uh, that maybe, if it be your will, those of the nations might come and they might separate themselves and participate in the Passover with us. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.